in the hypothetical scenario where people say things like, oh, non-monogamy doesn't work, all the studies show that, I would love to show them this, because I think that it's really interesting to have all of these very nuanced reasons as opposed to just thinking, oh, it's because somebody wants to sleep with whomever they want. And I love that. I think, yeah, it it kind of also brings perhaps a humanity to it that some people don't see right away, especially if they're super against it. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you. And we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're going to begin tackling a daunting task that we've been wanting to cover for a long time. Today is going to be the first of a two-part episode where we're going to go through a roundup of some of the most recent research studies that have been done about non-monogamy. Since starting this podcast in 2014, the amount of researchers actually looking seriously at consensual non-monogamy has grown hugely, and the way that they're writing about it is very different. It used to be no one's researching this, so I'm doing this study. And now it's, this is becoming a more and more common thing for people to research. So I want to add to the research in this way, which is really exciting. And today there's just way more information, way more academic papers being written about specific facets of non-monogamous relationships, the people who practice them, their health, the health of their children, and so much more. So today we're going to start by looking at a group of studies about who is practicing non-monogamy, what motivates people to practice non-monogamy, and then also how healthy non-monogamous relationships are in general and comparing sort of different ways of doing non-monogamy. And then next week, we're going to continue by looking at studies about non-monogamy and how it relates to mental health, sexual health, and the health of children being raised by non-monogamous parents. This is an exciting day. I feel like this could be a fun practice for us to do what? Once a year? Once every couple of years? Because especially as the pace of research is increasing on this topic, I think there could be some pretty regular updates to to give to the people. It's what the people want. Yes. It's what the people need. This is also (laughs) something that we're planning to put on our website. We're going to have a page, I believe it's multiamory.com slash sources, where we're going to put up links to the studies as well as some kind of basic summary information of what's in them so that people have a place to go to look for those things and we can continue to add to that as we discover research that we think should go on that list. Yeah, the hope is that if someone's ever trying to throw a bunch of like Helen Fisher research at you that makes the claim that non-monogamy <laughs> is just like biologically impossible. There's just like, no that way where that it comes from. Many Helen people, Fisher yeah. definitely contributed to that. But yeah, Helen Fisher Got is it. all very much on this bent that our, our brains just like physically cannot tolerate non-monogamy. There's no way that anyone could ever be happy in a non-monogamous relationship. So that if anyone throws that at you, you can okay. just go to our website where all these studies are, you know, uh, nicely compiled and nicely formatted and just wham, get into a little research fight. <laughs> Perfect. Love that. Anyway, so we're going to go through each of these studies one by one. And of course, we have to give the, ca- the caveats that we often give on the show whenever we're looking at research and studies. So again, we always have to be mindful of correlation and causation relationships. So as in causation, if a study says this causes this, that means this factor being in place definitely caused X, Y, and Z to happen. And there's a very strong link. Correlation is a little bit more unclear. It's They can see, say that, oh, we found this correlation that people who painted their houses blue were also correlated with having a higher income. But that doesn't necessarily mean if you go and paint your house blue, you're going to automatically have a higher income. Like correlation means we don't know the direction of what's influencing what. It could be because you have a higher income, you can afford that really nice, high quality, low gloss bare paint or whatever it is. 
Can you tell that I've recently had to go down a whole rabbit hole of shopping for paint? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so just bear that in mind. We're going to do our best to be clear when a study has talked about a correlation and really clarify that it is not necessarily causation. Yeah. One other caveat with these studies is when it comes to getting participants for these studies, all of them, with one exception, were almost predominantly all white people. You know, we're talking 85% or higher people who identify as white in the studies. What is interesting, though, in the studies that acknowledged that, they did find that when they were looking at it, they did not find that race had any effect on the answers, as in like they didn't find different results for non-white races in their studies. And so the studies don't talk about race as a factor, with one exception, which is a study specifically about African-American polyamorists that we'll get to later. And then the last thing, I know I painted this image of of you being really triumphant in this research fight against Helen Fisher. And I hope that you are. (laughs) I genuinely hope that you are. However, of course, we have to remember that the purpose of studies and of research and of science isn't necessarily to prove anything. And our media really likes to grab findings from studies to say, ah, science proved that your blue house is going to increase your income by $10,000 this year or whatever it is. And that's really not the point. Uh, You know, a well-written study is not going to make those kind of claims that, ah, this just empirically proves that this is the case or empirically proves that this type of communication practice or relationship practice is superior. You know, the whole point is that research builds on other research, you know, something that's baked into studies for those of you that don't know is a section where they talk about further avenues to be researched and talk about the ways that this particular study maybe missed certain areas or where there's gaps in the knowledge. And then also research, it's all about uncovering new things. And so it also will contradict earlier research and things like that. So basically, just trying to say, you know, you can take some of this as a grain of salt. None of this is trying to be a cudgel to, you know, insist that one particular way of practicing relationship is the right way. And that means every other way is the wrong way. Because even though there's evidence here and there's research, it doesn't mean that this is just like a hard, irrefutable fact. And actually, we're going to have a neat example of this in the very last study that we're going to talk about today, where even in their own research, they find certain things that contradict between multiple studies they did. And when they looked into why, found some surprising things. So it's actually kind of a good example of how continuing to do research and refining what we understand is the whole point of it, rather than, oh, I did this thing and now it's proved and you don't question me. Just just believe it, (laughs) right? Alrighty, we're going to jump right into our first section of research, which is motivations for non-monogamy. And this first study that we're looking at is a 2021 study by Moores, Gesselman, and Garcia called Desire, Familiarity, and Engagement in Polyamory, results from a national sample of single adults in the United States. And it was published in Psychology, Faculty, Articles, and Research. So the methodology and the demographics we'll start out with here. It was collected as part of the annual Singles in America SIA study run by Match. That's really interesting to me. I mean, Match.com, it makes sense that they would be making, you know, studies studies like this. Exactly. (laughs) That's primarily what they're looking at. So all of the people in the study were over 18. They were single, as we said, and they were English speaking. It included 3,438 respondents, and they filled out a full survey of 11 questions. So these are some of the clarify here is that this study is not by match. The data was collected by match and then that data is made available to researchers. So these researchers are not affiliated with match because match doesn't really study polyamory. As far as I know, they don't. They're not interested in it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they put questions about it on their survey, I guess. But but they tend to not be fans of it because they employ Helen Fisher. Oh, there you go. Well, of course. (laughs) And she's like, no. (laughs) All right. So these were some of the things that they were trying to determine within the study. First, they were trying to determine if people had engaged in polyamory before. So, for example, I have been in a polyamorous relationship before and I would like to be in another or I would not be in another, something along those lines. They also were trying to determine if people are interested in trying polyamory Like, I would consider being in a polyamorous relationship if it were more socially acceptable, or I will only consider polyamorous relationships, period. 
And then finally, they were also trying to determine if they know anyone polyamorous and how they feel about it. So, for example, I know someone who had or who is currently in a polyamorous relationship or I respect polyamorous people, but I could not do it myself. Something along those lines. And their findings were interesting. So 16.8% reported a desire for polyamorous relationships. That's close to that 20% that we talk about. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Supposedly there's the 20% of people who've ever done some kind of Mm non-monogamy. What's interesting to note about all of these findings is that this study is specifically with people who identify as single. That's who the research is about, which it is kind of an interesting thing in non-monogamy Because a lot of people open up their already existing relationship and that's like their gateway into it. Or maybe if someone does have a breakup, it's somewhat unlikely that they would get back down to zero and count themselves as Mm. single and be involved in this study. Also, maybe where they were getting their sample from is maybe Match.com subscribers, which are less likely to be polyamorous people. So it's all just stuff to keep in mind, right? I don't know exactly. Specifically young, maybe. If you are calling yourself single, maybe you're younger, it's skewing younger, or also maybe you've just gotten out of like a long-term relationship. Who knows? Yeah, we'd have to check and see. Yeah. So, okay, 16.8% had reported a desire for polyamorous relationships. 10.7% had been in one before. 6.5% know someone who is or has been in polyamorous relationships. 30.4% of people who had been in one previously would do it again. And then of those who had tried it, 21.1% said that they were too possessive to cope with it. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Yeah, that they were just too possessive specifically to cope with it. And 32.8% said that the emotional aspects of polyamory were too challenging. I think that was worth worth noting that the lower number is the jealousy one. The Only the mm-hmm. 21.1 said it was effectively because of jealousy that they were too possessive. I do think that's interesting because that's the one people would assume is the, the main one. And, it's, and that the larger answer they got was just the kind of the overall emotional aspects of managing multiple relationships was too challenging. Hmm, yeah, I'm- that is interesting. Also with 30.4% of people who'd been in one previously would do it again. I'm like, okay, so it's like a third. It's a nice amount. Retention yeah. rate. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You could look at it another way and say like one third ish of people who had been in some sort of polyamorous relationship and were now totally single would still pursue that. Uh, Maybe that's another interesting way to look at the question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This study is kind of a, a weird, interesting one, which is why I wanted us to start with this. Yeah. So additionally, men and people with lower education levels compared to women and people with higher education levels were around two times more likely to have been in a polyamorous relationship before, but there are no other significant correlations. Interesting. That's an interesting one for whatever reason. Really flies in the face of this idea that it's also only for like highly educated, you know, people and and that it's dominated by women. Though again, Mm -hmm. depends how they got their sample and how these people ended up on this study. Who knows? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps, I don't know, sometimes I think like men will pursue it more openly initially, but then women are the ones in that more retention category, maybe. I don't know. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, no, maybe. That's, potentially. that's an interesting hypothesis for your study, Emily. Yeah. We oh, yeah. Do it. So when, <laughs> well, we're going to come up with so many studies to do. Uh, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> for sure. Also, men were three times more likely than women to report desire for polyamory. So there you go. Non-heterosexual people were two times more likely than heterosexual people to want polyamory. And that tracks with that, other things we've that, seen. Yeah, yeah that, that definitely sense. tracks with, I think, what we see in the community, that, that there yeah. is this big overlap between, you know, the non-monogamous people and the queer people. And the queer people, for sure. Also, young people and non-heterosexual people were more likely to know someone polyamorous. That doesn't surprise me at all. Significantly, political affiliation and age did not correlate with prevalence of practicing or desiring polyamory, but they did correlate with being more accepting of other people being polyamorous, even if they were not personally interested. Democrats and young people were more likely to approve than Republicans and older people. Yeah. Isn't that interesting, though? That with the anecdotal evidence. But the first part, though, that they did not find... In terms of people wanting to do polyamory yeah, or having had done it, that age and political party were not affiliated or like not correlated with that. 
but then but they more are more likely to disapprove of it. Yeah. So that was Yeah, that's fascinating. I, yeah. I have no idea why. All right. Yeah. Well, that, that study did go all over the place, but it, that was really fascinating. And I think like a nice a kind of buffer and a, a first like study to look at for all of this. Yeah, definitely. It sort of set the scene there. So we're going to talk about another study. This was also in 2021. It's a study by Murphy, Joel, and Muise. Muse? Muise? I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name. Please? But it's called A Prospective Investigation of the Decision to Open Up a Romantic Relationship. This was published in Social, Psychological, and Personality Science. So basically, this was two surveys that they gave to their participants and they gave about two months apart. So this technically counts as a longitudinal study. Is that correct, Jace? Yeah, I think so. Because it's anything over time. It's anything over time where you have multiple time points. Yeah. Got it. Just not very longitudinal. No, not like Elizabeth Chef doing really huge longitudinal Right, for, for many years. Yeah, so this was over the course of two months. So they gave these surveys to 233 individuals that was made up of 80 men, 143 women, and 10 non-binary people. And these were all people who were considering opening up their relationship. Now, the average duration of the relationships that these people were in was about 8.4 years. So we're looking at an average of, I guess, what we would consider a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. About 55% of them were married and the rest were in some variation on a dating relationship or engaged. So for the surveys, they were looking at three different areas for each person at both the first and the second survey. And then they were also looking at what are these people's reasons for wanting to open up their relationship? So They were initially measuring relationship quality, sexual satisfaction, and life satisfaction as well. And of all the reasons that people might have for opening up, basically only two reasons emerged that had satisfactory data. It doesn't mean these are the only two reasons that people open up. It's just these were the ones that had data significant enough for them to pay attention to. And those two were intrinsic reasons. So as in you know, being non-monogamous is my identity or it's just what I want. Like, this is just a part of Mm. me and that's why I'm interested in opening up my relationship. And the other reason that they looked at was sexual incompatibility reasons. So as in just my partner and I have different sexual needs, different levels of sexual desire or different sexual fantasies or sexual interests or things like that. So this is what they found. That In the time between the first survey and the second survey, again, this is just a period of two months, about 67% of the respondents had opened up their relationship since the first survey. And then they compared the two groups, you know, the ones who had opened up in the meantime and the ones who hadn't. And so they found that those who did open up their relationship had significantly higher relationship satisfaction and life satisfaction. However, it wasn't that different from before they opened up. It just turned out that these people who seemingly came in with already high relationship and life satisfaction were more likely to just actually open up. So that's really interesting. And I think that's a cool one that would surprise a lot of people too, especially if they look at opening up as the stereotype of, oh, it's not working, so we're going to try opening up. But the relationships that were already happier and people who are happier were the ones more likely to actually open up in this particular study. I I just thought that was really interesting. And along those same lines, a study confirmed that opening up for these people, it did not decrease relationship satisfaction or life satisfaction, but it also didn't necessarily increase it. It seemed like everything stayed pretty net, what, neutral, net zero? I don't know what you'd call that. (laughs) Yeah, neutral to a little bit positive is kind of what they found, but definitely at least showed evidence that it doesn't make it worse. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. However, they did find that opening up did tend to increase sexual satisfaction, while sexual satisfaction went down for the people who had not opened up in that interim. And this was especially true for those people who identified specifically sexual incompatibility as the reason for wanting to be open. Which I suppose makes sense. Like you already are feeling maybe sexually frustrated or one or both people in the relationship feel like there's incompatibility. We we feel motivated to open up our relationship for that reason. Two months have gone by, it's still an open. And so I guess chances are pretty good that you'd still be feeling pretty sexually frustrated unless something, I don't know, some surprise solution presented itself (laughs) in the meantime, Mm -hmm. which happens for some folks. Now, interestingly, in the study, they didn't find any evidence to support that people with the 
intrinsic motivations were more satisfied with life or with their relationship after opening up than those with the other motivations. Overall, it basically, whatever people's motivations were, your chances of still having satisfaction with your life or with the relationship seems like that was pretty neutral or had a pretty neutral effect in this particular study. Yeah, this one's really interesting. And later we'll get into some studies that found slightly different things. But Hmm. I think what this study really brings up is how important it is to note what they didn't find, that, that a negative is also interesting, right? So say you hypothesize that the people who wanted to open up just for their own reasons versus some kind of sexual incompatibility issue would somehow end up happier when they did open up and they didn't find that. That's interesting, right? The fact that they didn't find something is also sometimes significant. So that's that's one yeah. of the cool, cool things about science. All right. So this next study here that's still on the same topic of people's motivations for opening up. Uh, this is a 2021 study by Wood, DeSantis, Desmarais, and Milhausen called Motivations. <laughs> that was lovely. <laughs> so French with well that, done. Jace. I don't know if I don't know if it's a French name or not, but here we like, are. I'm from Arkansas, but that's <laughs> it just felt bad to say like Desmarais as the name. You can say you it know, both ways. Just, just cover all your bases. Okay, Desmarais or Desmarais or some some <laughs> variation on that, and Milhausen. Uh, this is called Motivations for Engaging in Consensually Non-Monogamous Relationships, published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. Uh, I like that one. The title's real straightforward. It's just, this is what we're doing. (laughs) So this one was an online survey. You'll find that pretty much all of these studies that we're talking about today are online surveys of some kind. This one, though, is specifically targeted to people in consensually non-monogamous communities. So, you know, like the Reddit polyamory and Reddit non-monogamy groups, followers of sexuality, educators on Twitter, things like that. Like that's kind of how they tried to seek out respondents who Maybe were you out there. You might have been part of this. I know. Yes, you may have been part of those. These are all pretty recent. So there's a good chance that some of our listeners yeah. ended up on these studies. So in this, they ended up with 540 individuals who are currently in a consensually non-monogamous relationship and who answered all of their questions. And this one, they were open-ended questions. Hmm. They ended up with an average age of 35, although their range was everything from 18 to 82 years old, mostly Canadian and United States citizens, mostly white, as we mentioned before. And uh, 67% were in polyamorous relationships and the others were in some other kind of consensually non-monogamous relationship. And this was basically one question that they got to write however much they wanted to answer. And the question was, please tell us about your reasons for participating in a multi-partnered slash consensually non-monogamous relationship. And that's it. Go, go. Do, do with it what you will. <laughs> you can do a study on like uh, something like that. That's really interesting. Well, I guess they're yeah. like a qualitative study, right? Yeah, okay. Like when people yeah. do, yeah, something like this, or like if you're bringing people in and setting them down for interviews where it's less about checking boxes or tell me how like extremely Finding satisfied to not satisfied or, or strongly agree mm-hmm. or only kind of agree, like instead of that, that it is more about this qualitative content and like kind of sifting and parsing data out of that. So many of the studies we find are the opposite of that. So this is just cool that it's Mm -hmm. simply Mm -hmm. one question and then go. And we find different things from that. Very fun. Yeah. I mean, from my understanding of it, basically crunching the numbers and doing your data on a quantitative study. So something where people are answering like a five agree, one disagree, somewhere on that scale versus a qualitative study like this, where it's just having to analyze what people write. Because they mentioned it went everywhere from people who almost listed it like bullet points very succinctly and other people who wrote huge, long essays about their history and all the story leading up to it and all these things. And so finding like having to go through all of that, read all of it, find ways to codify it, to classify it into categories is a lot of work. So, so the, yeah, there are fascinating pros and cons to each, right? So basically what they did was in looking through it, they tried to find themes, basically, to find themes of like, what are kind of the recurring reasons why people do this? And they came up with six interconnected themes in the responses. So the first one is autonomy, 
which basically encapsulates everything from non-monogamy is just more natural for me. It feels more authentic to me. I don't want to be controlled or control others. Those sorts of answers. So autonomy was one of the themes. The second one was their belief system. And this tended to show up (laughs) more as kind of a negative belief in monogamy of kind of this belief that monogamy is restrictive of developing authentic connections or maybe is even harmful. Or it could be a belief that's more positive about non-monogamy, such as it allowing more individual exploration or belief that one person can't provide all of the sexual and emotional needs for someone else. So that's belief system. The third one was relationality, which basically means because I want to focus on my relationships and saying that non-monogamy helps them to form, enhance, or maintain relationships. Mostly, this was in the context of sexual and romantic relationships, but the researchers did acknowledge that several people also mentioned specifically friendships, that they were able to focus more on those, uh, as well as creating community with like-minded people and for allowing more integrity in the relationships that they do have. So relationality was the third theme. Fourth theme was sexuality. So that's the freedom to express yourself sexually or to, to live your sexual identity, interest in variety, novelty, or just excitement in sex. Or, as we mentioned in a previous study, that ability to accommodate discrepancies in sexual desires or preferences or things like that with a partner. Then the fifth one was growth and expansion. So that's a desire for personal growth that's fostered in non-monogamy. That's something we've definitely talked about before on this show, that kind of idea that you can learn more about yourself through different relationships. It allows relationships to grow and change in ways that feel more natural. So that's growth and expansion. And then the last one they called pragmatism, which was not pragmatism of like, it just makes sense, but pragmatism of this makes sense for me in my life right now. Like maybe because work's busy and this is just what works for me. Or I have a long distance relationship that's important to me and this just makes sense as a way to keep doing that relationship. Or there's some kind of medical issues that are are a challenge and that we're able to get our needs met better through non-monogamy. And the takeaway that the researchers came to from this is basically just that the reasons why people do it are a lot more varied and were more intrinsic than a lot of people assume. That there tends to be that assumption of, oh, it's just that they're looking for sexual excitement or maybe just some kind of pragmatic thing of like sexual differences that that and we'll see that that a lot of other studies focus on those too because i think some early studies focused on those and everyone else has kind of kept going on that theme but this study being more qualitative was able to explore this further and and showed that there were a lot of other reasons involved than just those and the hypothetical scenario where people say things like, oh, non-monogamy doesn't work. All the studies show that. I would love to show them this because I think that it's really interesting to have all of these very nuanced reasons as opposed to just thinking, oh, it's because somebody wants to sleep with whomever they want. And I love that. I think, yeah, it, it kind of also brings perhaps a humanity to it that some people don't see right away, especially if they're super against it. Mm hmm. Yeah, so looking at this list and these these reoccurring themes of autonomy, one's belief system, relationality, sexuality, growth and expansion, pragmatism. I'm thinking about our interview with Lola Phoenix a few episodes back where they were talking about finding your anchor, you like finding your reason why or yeah. finding what motivates you. And this seems like, I mean, I just end up working with a lot of folks who sometimes get a little lost, especially when they're new to non-monogamy of, I know I want to do this, but I'm not entirely sure why or like what actually excites me, especially people who are not partnered necessarily, who are single, who are still trying to navigate. Like, I know I don't want monogamy, but I'm not entirely sure what's the really exciting part here for me that even having this list of just examples, I think could really help people with brainstorming and getting a sense of, oh, what actually is in this for me? Does it feel like it's related to sexuality or is it about the autonomy? Like, I can see this as at least a good starting point for people to, I guess, to kind of find some ground to put their feet on. So our next study looks at kink. It's a 2021 study by Alora and Sprott, which are two of the greatest names I've ever heard in my life, called Consensual Non-Monogamy Among Kink-Identified Adults characteristics, relationship experiences, 
and Unique Motivations for Polyamory and Open Relationships. It was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. And these are results from two different studies. One was a U.S. national quantitative study of 690 adults, and one was a qualitative study of 70 adults in Northern California, which surprises me not at all, Dedeker. Northern (laughs) finding all those Northern Californians that love polyamory. Yeah, back to my roots. They looked at both studies to see how motivations to practice consensual non-monogamy may overlap with motivations for kink. And they found that over 80% of participants indicated that they had at least two emotionally significant relationships. Around 58% had three, at least three, and 43% had at least four. That's a lot of people. It is worth clarifying that, that in this context, they're not necessarily someone that they would identify as a partner, per se, but just an emotionally significant relationship. So that's why there's a little wiggle room. It's not saying for sure 80% were also polyamorous or something, but this is a good indication that somewhere close to that, probably. Yeah, that they were involved with more than one person in Mm -hmm. various ways, emotionally significant. From the large study, so the one with 690 adults, they found that participants' current emotional partners often included partners that they used to be sexual with but are no longer. That's a really interesting specification there. Because, again, yeah, you may not necessarily need to be sexual with someone for them to still be really emotionally significant in your life. Mm -hmm. Of the participants in relationships, 44.57% reported having at least one partner who is not kinky or did not share their kink interests. That's interesting because it kind of relates back to the couple other studies talking about sexual, you know, desire differences, but it could also Mm -hmm. just be kink differences. If I'm into this kink and you're not, or you're not kinky, I am, how can we, how can we manage this? That that came up in a lot of these. Of the 70 qualitative interviews, 29 of them spontaneously mentioned non-monogamy in their answers. That's cool. Like they weren't necessarily asked it, but they still spontaneously talked about it. Mm -hmm. Discrepancies in kinkiness or mismatch in kinks was a dominant, wink, 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 theme in desire for (laughs) consensual non-monogamy of some kind, which again is kind of what you just said, Jace. Right. Yeah, that that was recurring. Yeah. Yeah, something may be happening there. And so that's why perhaps they want to be involved with more than one person, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think that's something that doesn't necessarily get talked about, I think, quite often enough. I know sometimes when I bring this up in interviews, people are sometimes caught off guard or surprised. But I do think that in our culture, especially when it comes to kink or fetishes or even someone's just like sexual interests, that on monogamous folks, we put a lot of pressure on like, you need to sexually perform and kind of match whatever your partner brings to the table, whatever they want. Right. Because Mm -hmm. if you're not Mm -hmm. able to do that, then I think the fear is then they're going to leave you or they're going to cheat on you or stuff like that. And so there are a lot of people who do turn to consensual non-monogamy, not even because it's like, oh, I have high desire and my partner has low desire. But it's just straight up that that like I like the idea of being able to free my partner to be able to pursue their kinks instead of just Mm -hmm. being disappointed in me because I'm not really into their kink. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Before we continue on to covering some more exciting studies, we're going to take a quick break to talk about some sponsors for this show and some ways you can support this show to help us keep all of this information coming to people in an accessible way for free. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen to those and check them out if any are interesting to you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store 
and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. And we're back. And now we're going to be looking at studies that are examining the demographics of non-monogamy. Just getting curious about who's doing this, who's getting up to all these non-monogamy shenanigans. So first, we're looking at a 2019 study by Balzarini, Dharma, Kohut, Holmes, Campbell, Lay Miller, and Harmon called Demographic Comparison of American Individuals in Polyamorous and Monogamous Relationships. This was published in the Journal of Sex Research. So basically, they got two different convenience samples. And what a convenience sample is, well, it's better to just explain. What they did is they advertised in online communities for both monogamous or non-monogamous people to take a survey. And often with convenience samples, you're given a little treat or a little prize. It could be like a $5 Amazon gift card, or we're going to enter you into a raffle for like a $500 Amazon gift card or whatever it is. So when they were advertising the surveys, one survey advertised itself as, quote, investigating the perceptions of partners among individuals in polyamorous relationships. And the other survey advertised itself basically the same thing except for monogamous relationships. So they got 2,428 non-monogamous participants and 539 monogamous participants who qualified for the study. And they eliminated any non-monogamous participants who reported that any of their partners were unaware or not consenting, which is probably a good idea. Yeah, for getting some good data about these things. And basically, they were just looking at a bunch of different demographics like gender, sexuality, education, religion, political affiliation, income, profession, ethnicity, number of household members, whether or not people had children, all those sorts of things. These were the things that they found. So of the monogamous respondents, 74% identified as heterosexual. But in the non-monogamous group, only 36% did. Wow. The two groups didn't differ in the rate that they would select gay or lesbian as their identity, but the non-monogamous people were much more likely to choose bisexual, pansexual, or other, which again, I think tracks with the experience of this particular community. In this study, polyamorous people were slightly less likely to have a bachelor's degree or higher, and this is in contrast to, I know, some earlier reports that we remember hearing, especially when we started the podcast, that uh, the only people who are practicing this are people with bachelor's degrees or graduate degrees or higher. And so it's interesting that they they found that that wasn't the case with this particular study. They also found that non-monogamous people were much less likely to report being Christian. So only about 11% of that group compared to 29% of the monogamous group. About 70% of both groups reported that their parents were Christian. So, 70%? That blows my mind. I know. Wow. <laughs> A lot of us have that ex-Christian baggage yeah. or the baggage from being raised by Christian parents. My goodness. Uh, Both groups were mostly Democrats instead of Republicans, but the polyamorous people were less likely to choose either of those. They were more likely to choose another smaller party like the Green Party or Libertarians or things like that. Yeah. To to be clear, the majority still picked Democrat or Republican, but but that they were more likely to pick a smaller party than, than the monogamous people. The polyamorous group overall reported lower income than the monogamous group by a few percentage points. Again, going in the face of this idea that it's just for rich, educated people, right? Which I love that, though, because that like helps access needs like people who need or want to live in a big community so that they're Mm -hmm. able to afford things or have childcare, like stuff like that. I mean, Lola Phoenix also talked about that. Yeah. So this is interesting. 
The main career differences were that the polyamorous group were a bit more likely to be in IT. So as in 18% of the non-monogamous group versus 10% of the monogamous group. And the monogamous group were more likely to work in education. So 15% of the monogamous group versus 7%. Both groups were equally likely to be married and also equally likely to have children living at home. And again, the study had predominantly white respondents, which is likely due to their methods for collecting the sample. So the data around ethnicity is not necessarily very enlightening. Yeah. So now to kind of contrast that with this other study, this is a 2020 study by St. Ville, LeBlanc, and Giles, which is the who and why of consensual non-monogamy among African-Americans. And this was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. So as some background... In this study, the authors cite that other studies from 2014, 2017, and 2018 show that the prevalence of consensual non-monogamy does not differ between white and black people in the U.S. However, African-Americans continue to be underrepresented in the research on the topic. So this study was seeking to add to that research and to, they specifically said they wanted to help destigmatize consensual non-monogamy by not only exploring its prevalence, but also looking at why people are pursuing it. I think kind of like Emily mentioned in that earlier study, kind of wanting to humanize it and kind of put like, look, this is actually what why people might want to do this. So for this one, it was another online survey of 1,050 African-Americans aged 18 to 40. So this one was specifically looking at that age range, which I learned this age range is, is generally referred to as emerging adulthood which is kind of this... You're almost out of emerging adulthood, Jace. (laughs) Well, yeah. I think usually the emerging adulthood is more like 18 to 30-ish, but it's kind of in Mm -hmm. that college through like trying to get your life started kind of of time. Uh, So this is sort of in that and and a little more into into adulthood, I guess. Uh, The average age was 29 and about half men, half women in this particular study. So this was a 20-minute long survey so they, they got to a lot of stuff, but about the prevalence of non-monogamy, attitudes toward it, attitudes toward monogamy, infidelity, willingness to engage in consensual non-monogamy, relationship satisfaction, safe sex practices, religion, life experiences, trauma, etc. They looked at a whole lot of stuff. And of that, the things that they found that, that they pointed out in the study was that 6.2% of their people in their study reported engagement in consensual non-monogamy at some point in their life. Now that's interesting because it's lower than the 20% that we've heard in other studies. And it does make me curious about, you know, kind of how they went about collecting, you know, the, the people for this, if that might have any bearing on it, if the age might have an effect on that, if they were younger and hadn't had that experience, or maybe they were older, so they hadn't, I'm not sure what. So that's interesting. Of all the demographic variables, right? So so like income, political affiliation, all that sort of stuff. The only one they found to be a strong predictor of whether they had done consensual non-monogamy was if they were not straight, if they were not heterosexual. So heterosexuals were 73% less likely to have engaged in consensual non-monogamy. So again, similar to the other studies that we've looked at. Of the people who had practiced consensual non-monogamy in the past, the most common reason, 66% of people, was excitement and or need for sexual satisfaction. The next most common answer, 25% of the respondents gave, which was not wanting to be in a committed relationship. And I did think this was interesting, but they did not find any correlation with household income or education level, despite, again, that common perception that it's this educated upper-class phenomenon. And they found that age and religion did not have a significant effect in predicting whether someone was interested in or had done consensual non-monogamy in the past. So what I think is interesting about this study is just that it backs up a lot of the other studies that we've looked at. There's a few things that are a little different, which, again, this is why we need more of this research because these other ones have been, you know, we're basing our study off of these three other studies before us, and so we're able to really refine this data, whereas this is really the first one I know of that's asking these questions at all in specifically trying to look at African Americans. So there's more work to be done here, but it is interesting that at least on the surface, it seems pretty similar to the others. 
Now we're going to move on to the section kind of under the umbrella of non-monogamy and relationship health. So this next study was from 2019, and it's a study by Balzarani, Dharma, Kohut, Campbell, Lee Miller, Harmon, and Holmes. The study was called Comparing Relationship Quality Across Different Types of Romantic Partners in Polyamorous and Monogamous Relationships, and it was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, as a few of these have been. Mm -hmm. Now, this was taken from two online convenience samples of individuals in polyamorous and monogamous relationships obtained in 2013. That's interesting. So this study was published in 2019, but the samples were taken from 2013. It included just over 2,000 people, and most of the respondents were, again, in that emerging adulthood category, which they called 18 to 35, so not 18 to 40, but a little bit younger than that. Mm -hmm. Now, for the polyamorous people, they were asked to self-identify as being in a primary secondary, this is, quote, primary secondary, quote, co-primary, or, quote, no primary type structure. So, okay, that makes sense. Like, yeah, a primary relationship in a secondary or two people or more that like essentially operate as primaries or mm-hmm. non-hierarchical, I guess, no primaries. Yeah, or kind of like the multi-secondary model or however yes. you'd want to say it. People look at it different ways, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this is interesting. They removed anyone who did not fit in these three categories, which was over a third of the participants. And it yeah. was unclear exactly what other options they gave, hmm. but yeah, they removed anyone else. I know. So that that two thousand number of people, that's after they removed it. It was like thirty five hundred people it. first, and they wow. eliminated oh, wow. tons of them because they didn't fit into one of these three categories. Which is really maybe a whole other paper that someone else will write based on this data. Yeah. They answered questions to determine things like relationship acceptance by friends and family, relationship romantic secrecy from friends, family, or others, so how secretive they were about their romantic relationship, and then also investment in the relationship, things like commitment level, relationship satisfaction, jealousy, perceived quality of alternatives, so I guess quality of like alternatives to this type of relationship structure. No, more like, would I, do you think I'd be just as happy with someone else that's not this oh, person? Like I could just it. as easily get my needs met from someone else, that, that type of wow. alternatives. Also quality of communication and proportion of time spent on sexual activity with their partners. Wow. Yeah. Like how, how much, yeah. What else do you do with this person? Yeah. Is it only <laughs> sex based or not? That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. For the polyamorous people, the answers were separate for each of their partners. That makes sense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because it's not going to be one answer for everyone. Yeah. Based on those answers, for the people who called themselves, quote, co-primary or, quote, non-primary, they assigned the partners as, quote, pseudo-primary or, quote, pseudo-secondary. And this was determined based on the duration of relationship and cohabitation. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of weird that they did that, but it'll become relevant to what they were studying. So am I am I reading this correctly? Because I think, Jace, you actually read the text of the study in more detail. Yeah. The way I'm reading this is that, like, so if I'm taking the survey and if I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I have two co-primary partners, but then I go on to indicate I live with one of these partners and I don't live with the other, that then they would jump in and be like, okay, that must mean the partner that you don't live with is pseudo-primary. Is that like kind of what they were doing? Yep. Yeah, no, you, yeah, you nailed it. So oh, they God. they specifically did a, a bivariate analysis of both huh. duration of relationship and cohabitation with the person. And then whichever had the higher score, they marked them as primary or as even if somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so even if somebody said that they don't like operate in a, in a hierarchical or primary, non-primary, they still said that they're pseudo primary. Well, right. They didn't tell the respondents this while they're taking the study, but in their analysis, they codified them that way. And I was annoyed by this at first. But then as I started reading their findings, I was like, okay, I kind of see what you're trying to do here. Mm. They're basically acknowledging that whether you intentionally practice like a strict hierarchy or not, 
there's just sort of effectively going to end up with someone that you end up more invested with or more entwined with or whatever. And, you know, we use all sorts of different terms for that on the show. But that's the point is what they're looking at in this study is what are the differences between people's experience with their primary and secondary partner? One, compared to the monogamous people who took this study. And then two, compared to the people who said they were hierarchical and the people who said they weren't, you know, or or had multiple primaries or no primaries. Like what was the difference between the experience of their primary and their secondary partner? even if they didn't call them that. So that's kind of sure. what they're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, which I get. Because right, like, well, I think we do see that. Yeah. But of course, like people can say whatever, but then their behavior can be really different. So I guess that right. makes mm-hmm. sense. So the findings were in most instances, they found that secondary and pseudo-secondary partners in non-primary structures were less accepted by friends and family. They were less committed, less invested, less satisfied or satisfying, I guess, those those partners were, and they were more likely to be kept secret and spent a larger proportion of time together on sex. That's interesting. Huh? Yeah. And it kind of makes sense, right? We've talked about this before, where there's sort of that primary privilege that shows up, Mm -hmm. where if this is my primary partner, people at work know this is them, you know, maybe my family knows about this person, especially if I was in this relationship first. And then I opened up. Everyone already knows them. So it's just kind of easier and safer to keep the other one a little more secret, be a little less entwined with them, that kind of stuff. And just that that shows up whether you call that primary or not. I do think is at least interesting. And and we have talked about that, that that's something to be mindful about and be aware of. So so that makes sense here. I did when I was in what I would call a secondary relationship, the person who I was with we tended to have sex every time we saw each other, which was maybe once a week. And if we didn't, I know I recalled very vividly at one point he was like, well, if we're not going to have sex, like, what are we doing? Like, why aren't we doing that? And I was surprised a little by that because that's not necessarily if you if you live with someone, for example, you're not going to be having sex every single day necessarily. Maybe some people do, but But yeah, that expectation, I think, is a little bit more prominent if you're only seeing someone once a week, for example, or once every other week, which is so that that skews the sex higher, like the amount of time that you're having sex with someone higher. I think especially because they set up their pseudo primary thing to identify the person you live with is probably your primary. And if you're just looking at percentage of time together that we're having sex, if I live with you, I'm doing a lot of other things like sleeping, cleaning the house or whatever. (laughs) And if I don't, it's just going to be a higher percentage of having sex, even if it's just as often as the other person. So like, I feel like that's, it's like, come on guys, you kind of set up that in the way you defined primary, but but sure. Yeah. So interestingly, in the co-primary, rather than the non-primary relationships. So people who identify as like all of their partners are primary. Mm -hmm. They did not have less investment, satisfaction, or commitment level than the pseudo-primaries. Yeah. And yeah, I guess, does that also mean that both of them were living together or all of them were living together or what? Is that not not necessarily? necessarily? No, it's basically what they're saying is that between... Like the people who said, I have a primary and secondary, they found all those things where the secondary was less satisfying, less invested, more likely to be kept secret, all that stuff that we mentioned before. And in people who said, I don't have any primary, they found the same difference between their Mm. pseudo primary, like their effective primary and their effective secondary. But of the group who said, these are both my primary or these are all three my primary that in those categories of investment satisfaction and commitment level, they didn't have as much of a difference. So it's yeah. interesting that that kind of shows that if you say multiple primary, it seems like maybe there's more of an effort or or just you feel more of a consistent yeah. level of commitment and satisfaction between them. I don't know. It's interesting. Finally, in their second study, they mostly confirmed the same findings, except that in one, they found the differences between the primary and secondary partners were smaller in both the co-primary and non-primary structures than they were in the primary secondary ones, which I guess makes sense. But yeah, again, I think that is, it's like, where's the chicken and the egg? If you mm-hmm. if you perceive are perceived as secondary or perceive yourself to be secondary, then are you going to feel less satisfaction 
versus, you know, people who are perceived or who are told were co-primaries here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, it's that, fascinating. That's, that's great questions. I love more studies on this one for sure. Totally. Next one is a 2021 study by Conley and Piemont called, Are There, quote, Better and, quote, Worse Ways to Be Consensually Non-Monogamous? CNM Types and CNM Specific Predictors of Dyadic Adjustment. This seems interesting. This was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. So basically, they did five total studies for this one. All of them used online questionnaires and they were focused on evaluating the differences in relationship quality between people who are polyamorous, people who are swingers, and people who are in open relationships. And now these researchers characterize the differences this way. So basically they defined swinging as having sexual experiences together. They defined an open relationship as having separate sexual relationships, but not romance or love. And they defined polyamory as having separate sexual and romantic relationships. I know some people will hear that and get really, really angry that they oversimplified it. Or some people will be like, oh, wow, it's finally clear. You can have your reaction. <laughs> but that's, that's the terms that they decided for this particular research study. And they were only evaluating people's, quote unquote, primary relationships. So in the first three studies... They were evaluating the differences between these three groups on their relationship satisfaction, their commitment, their sense of passionate love, levels of jealousy, and also trust. So specifically, these first three studies, they were working to validate some of the previous findings from a 2017 study by Conley, Piemont, Gosakova, and Rubin from the University of Michigan. Now, this older study was looking at all those same factors, but just comparing them between consensual non-monogamy and monogamous relationships. So they didn't necessarily get more granular into the different types of consensual non-monogamy. And again, each study here didn't necessarily look at all of those traits, but they did kind of overlap in some of those categories. So this is what they found. Firstly, that universally, the people who were in open relationships self-reported less relationship satisfaction, less mm. passionate love, less trust, and more jealousy than either the polyamorous or the swinging groups. And also, between the three different studies, they found that between polyamory and swinging, different studies showed higher or lower jealousy or trust or satisfaction between the two groups. So that's interesting. It was kind of all over the place between their mm -hmm. different studies. They didn't find necessarily a consistent result. So overall, what they were able to conclude, you know, the one consistent thing they found was that people specifically in open relationships were consistently less happy in their relationships than either, you know, the polyamorous people or the swingers. So then they have to figure out why. And that's where the second two studies come in. Ooh. And I thought this was fascinating. So basically they said, okay, we found this trend and we've replicated this across three studies. Now let's try to look at why. And for these, they actually used different sets of responses from studies two and three previously. So they were able to kind of look back at that data and they'd kind of put in some questions specifically to answer these, but did sort of a, a separate analysis of them based on what they found previously. So of those, they were trying to focus on why the people in open relationships are having worse scores on this. So study number four focused on communication skills. Uh, so basically that was one of their hypotheses was that, well, all the polyamory books and consensual non-monogamy resources really talk a lot about communication skills. And they noticed that the communication skills that are often taught in the books and podcasts and resources line up with some fairly well-validated interventions that are used in marriage therapy, specifically one that's called PrEP, which not like the prophylactic drug, but PREP is one. And then CARE, C-A-R-E, are the two different systems. So what they did is they looked at, based on their answers, do you have communication skills that are in line with these methodologies that are used in marriage counseling to kind of see like, oh, do you just have maybe better communication techniques? And then they also looked at how much they held pro-monogamy beliefs. So they were thinking that perhaps huh. people in open relationships are more likely to think monogamy is a better, more ideal thing to do. They just don't happen to be doing it. And so maybe that's wow. leading to their 
lack of satisfaction. Those were the hypotheses mm. that they were testing. Okay, now the other study, study five, before we get to the results. So study five is looking at people's motivation for non-monogamy. So was it intrinsic or extrinsic, right? Am I doing this because I want to, or am I doing this because there's some circumstance like a long distance relationship or sexual incompatibilities or something that feels more out of my control? And then they also looked at how well do you know your metamors, thinking that perhaps polyamorous people and swingers might be more likely to know their metamors than open relationships, and maybe that's part of it. And then also, how much do they hold pro-monogamy beliefs? Again, that, that I love same that thing. they looked at all this. It's so cool. Yeah, super fascinating. This this is my favorite yeah. study. That's why I put it last in this episode. So this nice. this is my favorite of these. So so here's what they found when they looked at these in study four. First, they confirmed their hypothesis that people in open relationships reported less effective communication patterns. So not self-reported, but just based on their answers, they saw they didn't have these practices that have been shown to be good, and that they were more likely to believe that monogamy is an ideal that people should follow. So mm, that kind of tracked us. So they're like, huh, okay, maybe those are the reasons why they're having less relationship satisfaction and trust and, and intimacy and stuff too. So then in study five, however, they did not find a difference between the open relationships and the swinger polyamory groups in terms of how pro-monogamy their beliefs were which was kind of surprising. I thought thought for sure there'd be a difference there. But I wonder if that could be because in this, they were now combining the swinger and polyamory groups mm. into one. And I wonder Swing if that... data might skew it. Well, I wonder. I just don't know. And it frustrates me that they didn't present that data separately. It just really surprises me to think that the polyamory group would feel just as pro-monogamy as the swingers and the people in open relationships. But maybe, maybe it is. I don't know. I wish I, wish I knew. Maybe I'll have to like go and run my own numbers on their data if they have it available. So one thing they did find too is that having more extrinsic motivation led to lower satisfaction and that having better communication techniques led to higher satisfaction. So those things kind of like they expected. So that the open relationship mm -hmm. people tended to have less good communication and that they found that communication led to higher satisfaction or like good communication led to higher satisfaction. Yay, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. What I, what I thought was really interesting was this last part they did in their analysis was that overall, the people in open relationships had more extrinsic motivation in their study. So more likely were doing it because of some other factor out of their control rather than just because they want to. And that they had less effective communication techniques and that they ended up less satisfied and less trusting in their relationships. However, when they looked at the numbers again, but compared based on uh, not on relationship category, so ignoring whether they're in an open relationship or polyamorous or a swinger, and instead just looked at how are your communication skills, how are your pro-monogamy beliefs, and how familiar are you with your metamors, that there was no difference in how happy people were, whether they were open swinging or in polyamorous groups. So, hmm. so effectively showing that what matters is the communication, knowing your metamors, and not doing a relationship that's at odds with your beliefs, basically, that that's what matters, that not whether, right. And so it's not, and this is a good example. And this is what I kind of previewed earlier, like Dedeker was mentioning with correlation and causation. This kind of makes an interesting case that you might say first from correlation, oh, well, open relationships just aren't as good as, as polyamory or swinging because these scores were lower. But then when you dig deeper and they keep going with the research, it's actually, well, no, actually, maybe it's just that it's communication and your monogamy beliefs and how well you know your metamors that matters and that people in open relationships happen to have less of those, like less of the communication skills, right? So it's, it's just interesting to look at it and be like, what might be causing the other thing? And it might not be what you think it is at first. So overall, I think kind of the cool takeaway is just having more intrinsic reasons for why you're doing it. And then also having good communication strategies and knowing your metamors is is gonna get you more success. And there seems to be a Great. lot of evidence to support that, which which I love because that's what we're all about here. If you go to multiamory.com slash sources, that's where you can find basically links to all of these studies. We could probably post it also with a little, you know, a little summary of the findings because I mean, sometimes dropping in links, the unfortunate, frustrating thing is a lot of these studies are hidden behind a paywall. 
So if you've been to that link before, like we already have some studies there. A lot of them are from like 2016, 2017 or so. We'll probably still leave those up, but we will add these more up-to-date research studies and hopefully keep that page updated into infinity and beyond for as long as they're doing research about non-monogamy and as long as we're doing this show. And we hope you all join us next week as we continue our research roundup. We're going to look at studies on non-monogamy and its relation to mental health, sexual health, and the health of children raised by non-monogamous parents. That was a doozy, like all of those things. And I'm really excited to look up even more interesting things on mental health and sexual health and all of that next week. Because, yeah, I feel like in a lot of ways, we just scratched the surface, even though that was a huge amount of research mm-hmm. that was just thrown our way. Yeah. So our question of the week this week on Instagram is, what do you wish researchers were looking into in non-monogamy? I think it would be great to hear from you, especially after this episode. What do you think should be studied more that's not right now? And maybe some researchers out there will see it and start doing studies on it. Let's let them know. <laughs> The best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is in this episode's discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can post in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Emily Matlack, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. This episode was researched by Dr. Kiana Nurse and M. Mays. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. <laughs>